So I'm Fran. Um, this is my 11th week here at Peace of Christ Church. Um, and it is my first opportunity that I've gotten to share with you all um, my thoughts and my approach to worship. Um, yeah, so there's this sacred idea called worship. It's sacred to me because I've spent a large portion of my life doing it, preparing to do it, thinking about it, and trying to cajole or inspire other people to do it, sometimes successfully and sometimes with utter failure. But regardless of that, regardless of my successes or my failures, there is a spark of something there that I keep returning to. I used to think that worship was simply giving glory to God because it's God's right to receive it and it's my duty to give it. And that's not untrue. But now I would say that my ideas about worship are much more multidimensional and they have evolved. So much of what we reduce the word worship to in our vernacular really just means church service, right? What's going on? <laughs> Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Let's say yell. Okay. Yeah, so so much of what we reduce that word to just means church service in our minds, right? We say the word worship and what we mean is church meeting or um, it means like church music in the context of the songs we sing or the songs that we hear congregationally. But what does that have to do with God? And why does it matter? And why do we sing at all? What is the point of devoting so much time to music in worship? When we say the word, what do we mean? And how can we reimagine that word in light of what we say we believe about God? Here are some things that we believe about God. That would be the next slide. Um, okay, here's some things that we say we believe about God. We say that God is neither male nor female, but encompasses and supersedes both, right? We say that God loves all, irrespective of race or gender or orientation or anything. We say that God's presence is everywhere. We believe that God is present in suffering and present in joy and present in ordinary work and present in boredom, etc., etc. We believe that mature thinking about God allows for doubt, anxiety, and suffering on the one hand, but also hope, joy, and peace on the other. We believe that God invites our questions around here. We're pretty big on the question thing, aren't we? We believe, ultimately, that the most beautiful story we can think of is the story of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So... Jesus himself didn't talk about worship much, much, 
There is one famous instance that I can think of in John 4 when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and he says, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's, that's one of the only times to my recollection that Jesus actually mentions it. However, we see over and over in the Gospels that when people, like Jesus will heal somebody or do a miracle of some kind and people will realize who he is. And when they realize it, they fall to their knees and they worship. So worship itself means adoration, praise, expressing reverence, and as a posture, it means allowing God the position of highest importance or highest priority and greatest influence. So to some extent, our liturgy serves the purpose of reminding us of that, of reminding our minds of who God is and why God might be worthy of being given highest priority and influence. But before we can express reverence or adoration of God, we have to know something about God. And I believe that we have to know it deeply, both for ourselves as individuals and communally. And that's part of the reason I back up on the word worship. I say, why are we using this word? What does it mean? So my title is Interim Pastor, Pastor of Worship. And it is that because worship is the word that we most associate. We know this word and we associate it with someone who administrates church music and church service, right? But I wish, I wish that it could be something different. I wish that it could be um, pastor of practicing the presence of God or pastor of inviting the presence of God or pastor of paying attention to the presence of God or even pastor of engaging with the presence of God. That's more in line with what I consider my job to be, to create space musically and hold it ready for God to inhabit. Or more precisely, for God to be revealed in that space because God was already there all along, right? And the point of that is so that we can know God intimately. I came out of the vineyard most recently, and they are really great at worship in the vineyard. They're fond of saying, saying this. They say, songs are a place we go. And that really resonates with me, because I think that we're, we're creating this musical place to enter into. And my work in creating that space is always, always dependent upon God. I can't make God reveal God's self and I can't make anyone, this lot least of all, because you all have minds of your own, express adoration for God. Those things are just not up to me. My job is to hand out invitations, hold open the curtains, and point the way into the presence. My job is, in large part, to wait and to trust God to show up inside a space and to trust that anyone exposed to God in that space will be deeply moved. Whenever I'm singing, I hope you'll sing with me because I'm a big fan of singing and I think the best kind of singing is loud and off key and together. <laughs> and I think singing is a beautiful way to express adoration. But I would like for our purposes to propose perhaps a new working definition of worship just for us. So, yeah, 
Can you, yeah, there we go. What if worship, instead of being a duty or a religious tradition that we follow, what if it worship involves some of these elements or distinctives? Okay, here we go. What if worship involves paying attention to the presence of God and responding appropriate, appropriately to that reality? What if it involves allowing space and time to engage directly with that presence? What if it involves allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and authentic emotionally and mentally within that space of time to bring our actual selves before God in that space? What if it involves waiting and listening and staying open? What if it's allowing liturgy, of which songs are a part, to do its job? The job of liturgy is to form us and open us to responsiveness with God. What if it involves allowing art and creative expression to move us in some way? Or orienting us to God as creator to creation or lover to beloved. It involves centering us in Christ. And it involves asserting ourselves as spiritual beings. In Romans 12, the first, ver the first verse of that chapter says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the point of our worship, which is to say the point of our song singing and our participation together with any liturgical element, is the same. It is to form us. It's less about God needing us to praise them and more about us needing to orient ourselves to God which involves realizing that God is above all and in all, and we are surrounded by and dependent on God. It's to bring about spiritual formation or revelation or a deeper understanding of the divine. And hopefully, in the context of that, hopefully we are able to open our hearts Hopefully we're able to hear directly from the divine and experience that benevolent presence. Hopefully we're able to have awe and wonder inspired in us. Or to give something to God that maybe we were holding on to. But why do we sing in particular? So I often say this, and you've probably heard me at some point in the last 11 weeks say this. Singing is a physical act that helps us access our spiritual selves. Singing is one of the oldest forms of human expression. Every culture, every human culture ever studied has some form of singing or chanting within it. It is found historically in the midst of all kinds of human activities and rituals. Preparing for war, in grief and in funerals, in celebrations, in feasts and harvests, in rhythmic working, we sing working songs, in childbirth, in caring for the sick, and not least of which, in worship. Singing is one of the most basic traditions of humanity. It is ubiquitous to us. Now, 
The oldest musician, uh, the oldest musical instruments that have been found are around 40,000 years old. But the first human instrument was the voice. Some historians and archaeologists believe that art and music were part, and listen to this, it was part of what helped early humans create a sense of group identity and trust that helped them to survive and adapt and evolve. So their habit of singing together helped them to become. I have a few images here. Um, this is yeah, a bone flute. It's about 35,000 years old. I think it's made of a bird bone, this one. What's the next one? Yeah, these are made from bird and mammoth bone. We think that these are uh, perhaps even 43,000 years old. And the next. Okay, so there's a video. Will you play the next video? So this is a picture of, of a, a bone flute that was found. And here's a video of what they think it might have sounded like. They've made a, a recreation of this flute. And we think this, is my, this might be what it sounded like based on somebody made an, uh, a replica out of a bare bone or something. It's pretty, it's pretty eerie and interesting. That was the weird sound that accidentally played during the moment of silence. Okay, that's enough. Isn't that crazy? So humans, this was like 40,000 years ago, humans are playing music and expressing themselves creatively. Um, let's see, there's another, what's the next video? Okay, this I thought was really interesting this week. I found this. This is the oldest known melody. Click, click it so it plays, please. It is known as the Hurrian Hymn, and it's about 3,400 years old. They found some um, stone tablets with strange markings on them that they couldn't, they didn't know what these markings mean. And eventually some scientists and archaeologists put their heads together and they figured out that it was a form of musical notation. Is it playing? Oh, of course. <laughs> Maybe we can hear it. So uh, an, a musician recreated the sound of it on a, on a lyre oldest known melody of human history, folks. Right there. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. Okay, you can skip forward. That's good. We got the idea. <laughs> you can you can Google, you can YouTube that and listen to the oldest known human hymn. The oldest known melody, rather. What's next? I think there's another. Oh, here's an example of, similarly, the ancient Masoretic texts. Um, they, they figured out that some of the markings on the ancient texts of the Psalms, some of the <coughs> oldest versions of the Psalms that, that have been found, were also musical notation. And so we think, oh, can you click it? It's a bit. It should be. So we think that this is what some of the original psalmic texts may have sounded like in music, because so many of the psalms are actually musical texts.
So to the best of our archaeological and historical and scientific knowledge, this is perhaps what an ancient psalm in biblical times may have sounded like. That's good, thanks. You can YouTube those later if you want to listen more. They're pretty, um, they're pretty meditative. They're actually really good for working to or meditating to. So science, scientists have come up with some varied theories that try to explain the origins and evolution of human music and singing. But they all agree that singing, music, and art are very old and very human expressions. In fact, it's believed that singing came before speaking in terms of the evolution of human language and vocalization. Um, it, regardless of how it began, we know, I think we can all agree that communication and expression and creativity are integral to our human identity. They're integral to our culture and to our history. But here's another thing about singing. It helps us remember, right? We can all sing advertising jingles that we heard in our childhood, right? I can sing, to, I can sing several right now. I can sing, you're not fully clean unless you're successfully clean, right? Can you sing one? <laughs> who, can, who can sing one? Juicy fruit, it's gonna move ya. It's got the taste, gets right to ya. You just, Juicy fruit. The taste, taste, the taste, taste, taste. <laughs> right? We can remember that years later and it's completely vapid and we have no reason to need to remember that, but it's stuck, right? It's stuck in our psyche. And there's a reason that, advertise, that advertisers do this. And it's because music penetrates the human psyche in ways that words alone cannot do. And numbers can't do it either. For some people, pictures can come close. But look, there's a reason that we have nursery rhymes that we learn things from. And our church foremothers and church forefathers knew this too. They knew that if you really want to learn a thing, you should sing it. And that's why we have the rich hymn tradition that we've been handed down. Because if we can distill our theology into lyrical and musical bits, we can digest it and retain it in ways that we can't if we only ever read it or have it preached at us. In Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We also know just from our own experience that music helps us in ways we can't necessarily articulate in words. It is a language of its own. It appeals to our intuitive, empathic natures. We can feel music. We can resonate with music. It can make us feel happy or sad. We respond to it emotively, and it speaks to us non-intellectually. In the Bible, we see a rich history of music involved in worship. Uh, music is deeply connected to the prophetic and priestly traditions. There are beautiful examples in the Psalms, one of which we, we heard. I believe that was Psalm 19 that that video was about. Um, but examples in the Psalms of songs that are sung for expressing every human emotion, every gamut, from joy to lament and everything in between. Not to mention there are the famous biblical songs like Zechariah's song and Mary's song in Luke 1 and Miriam's song, which is in Exodus. 
And scripture also tells us that God, God is a singer. In Zephaniah, uh, pardon me, in Zechariah, we, we, we hear God will rejoice over you with singing. And Christ is also reported in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew to have sung hymns with the disciples. And some scholars believe that those hymns would have indeed been psalms like the one we heard. Throughout scripture, particularly in the psalms, we see singing mentioned alongside joy. That's my next slide, yeah. So here's a, just a sh shotgun of, um, of, influence, of scriptures. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 9.2, I will be glad and exult in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. 51.14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Um, 63, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So we've got singing and joy consistently in scripture right up next to each other. And my question is always about that. Is that the chicken or the egg? Which came first there? Is that a causation or is it a correlation? I don't know, but I think it's pretty important. So, if we, ex if we take our ideas about worship and we expand them and we take them out of their church service box, we start getting into the nitty gritty of life. We edge up to a truth about human nature, which is that we are hardwired to worship. We are always worshiping something all the time. The question is, what is it? Often, it's my phone right there in front of my face. So that's why the verse in, in Romans 12 that comes right after the first verse that exhorts us to be living sacrifices as a spiritual act of worship, the very next verse, verse 2, says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it says that because the author knows that we are going to be idolizing something and we all need to practice making it God. And this is why we think that centering prayer is so important. And that's why we think all the disciplines are so important because we need to reorient ourselves to God over and over. And worship is one of those disciplines that we do over and over. We sing songs about adoring God as part of our spiritual practice. So what about beauty? What about art and creativity? I believe that art and beauty and creativity are part of our practice too. I believe that they're a part of our human identity. I asked a friend of mine whose name is Nate Murick, and he is a scholar of religious music at Baylor. I said, why do humans sing? Nate, tell me why humans sing. And he said this. At the most basic level, we sing to beautify our lives. Now, Nate doesn't agree with Maslow. Remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Well, beauty is like way up there at the, at the, at the end of, at the top of the pyramid or the end of the list. And he says, Beauty is not the least important need. And then I asked him after that, I said, why do we sing together in religious services? And here's what he said. He said, we sing together in Christian worship to build and be community in all the rich depth of that word. He said, I read the Bible to say that humanity's most basic need 
is for relationships and community. And music makes community in profoundly formative and long-lasting ways. So, that's end quote. So just like our ancestors, our art and music and singing helps bind us together and together we become beauty and we meet our collective need for beauty. I believe that we are all made in the image of God and therefore we, were, we are all, every one of us, artists and creators. And I believe that expressions of our humanity and our image of Godness are beautiful. Creativity for each person is going to be different, but I am certain that we are our best and most authentic selves when we are creating beauty and participating in it. I think that the church, capital C, the church, should be beautiful and winsome and should reflect the beauty of the gospel of Christ. We know that the love of God is the pinnacle of beauty, and us expressing that love and beauty is what we are striving for in every single church service and gathering and meeting, in the liturgy, in the music, in the communion, in the messaging. Every aspect of the life of Christ himself was permeated with beauty. I believe even the most mundane or unlovely aspects of his life were infused with beauty beauty of healing, the beauty of sacrifice, and even the hidden beauty in pain and sorrow. So I invite you, I invite you to think back to the last time you felt overcome with sorrow so much that you wept. Just think of that moment. What was happening in that moment? Were you in a place where you simply felt safe enough? You felt safe enough to weep? Or was it just that your sorrow was so deep and overwhelming that you couldn't contain it anymore? You couldn't keep a straight face? Why did you express that emotion? Now think back to the last time you were overcome with joy. What did your body do? What did your face do? What did you say or shout? Was there laughter? And what put you over the edge of your, re your regular emotional range, right? We have a regular emotional range that's like acceptable and it's about this big in life and there's all of this. So what put you outside of that? Were you in a safe place again? Were you with a trusted friend? Were you alone? And there was no one to think ill of you if you expressed your emotion? Did you jump or did you dance? So why was it okay in that moment to express those strong emotions? We've all felt those because we are humans living on the earth, right? But I, I think that many of us live in fear of our strong feeling because they threaten our dignity and they overcome our sense of propriety and they bring us to the limits of our control. I think, and I include myself in this, I think that many of us fear a genuine encounter with God in part because we might lose that control. We're afraid of engaging with God because our strong emotions, which we know are lying dormant within us, might get triggered. 
We don't know how we'll react or if we'll do something that someone else might judge to be excessive or crazy. So basically, we have trust issues with ourselves and with God. With God because we're afraid that God might require us to look at the deepest parts of ourselves and thereby awaken our strong emotion. And with ourselves because we think we're somehow broken in the first place to even have those. But I am here to tell you that God will bring mercy and love into any place you let God into. God is very polite and never forces. And I believe that God's hope is to be let right in the door to our deepest pains and our highest joys. When we get ourselves into the actual presence of God in a way we can feel, my experience is that one of two things usually happens. Holy silence or holy roaring. And part of engaging with God is allowing. We allow God to go where God wants and to be who God is. We pull back on our expectations and create empty space that allows. And we say a holy yes. So our communal worship together gives us space to process pain together, but it also aligns us to a greater experience of joy. And it's in the context of communal worship that we say that yes together, and we encourage each other in the saying of the yes. Because there's a spiritual party happening, and we heard a glimpse of it in the scripture that Kyle read from Revelations. We read the passage that gives us a poetic picture of what worship looks like in the heavenly realm. So these beings, they fall to their knees because they know who the Christ is. And they know it deeply and richly. And it's a big, beautiful thing that even the angels can't contain. I have a pastor friend who says this, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly how he puts it, but he says, there are some things in life that are too big, too big to be said. They must be sung. Mere language cannot contain them. The gospel of Christ, the story and the beauty of it, is a thing too big to only be said. We have to sing it. We have to sing it so we know it, and we have to sing it so that we share it. If you have never danced for joy in a room full of your friends and family and sung at the top of your lungs, I'm telling you, you're missing out. Because I believe that the image of worship that we should hold in our minds is more akin to the wedding feast at Cana than it is to our ideas about the segregation of the formal temple. I believe that it's raucous and unscripted and unpredictable and full of rowdy joy. Now that said, some of us have to have a few sips of holy wine before we can go all out, right? <laughs> and that's why we have church, because we get together, folks, for a feast. We make that feasting part of our lives and our practice, and we allow that holy body and blood that we imbibe each week symbolically to transform our perspectives. And it will. It will if we let it. It can be trusted to transform because that's its very nature. It makes me think of the verse in Ephesians that says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's so interesting that that scripture says, speak to yourselves in songs. As if, like, when we're singing the songs, we are singing our own souls alive. We're, like, digging down and planting theology in our hearts and minds so that it becomes part of our nature. And the other thing is that we're given in that scripture a picture of a new kind of drunkenness and disinhibition. Because wine drunk was only ever a shadow of a picture of what spirit-filled looks like. We'll become even more undignified. And we'll sing at the top of our lungs and dance until we're drenched in sweat. And we'll revel in the holy presence of God. It's not for nothing, folks, that the early Christians were mistaken to be drunk on the day of Pentecost. Because the authentic presence of God is intoxicating. And when we get a taste of it, we want more. And we'll go to great lengths to get it. So, we're all here, perhaps with a few exceptions, because we do often tend to repress our doubt, although we shouldn't. We're here because we somehow believe that God is a person or an entity or a community or a community of entities, if you will, a trinity, perhaps, worth paying attention to. We, we have on some level some belief that God is um, worth being a, given a few hours a week in pursuit of. And that our relationship with God is worth investing in. And maybe it's maybe that's on the periphery of our lives, or maybe it's part of our daily rhythm. We're all at different places. But I think that I think you wouldn't be here if you weren't hungry for it on some level. For genuine spiritual experience and for a taste of the presence. We are longing for something to touch us deeply and wake us up from our spiritual sleeping. We have all, at some point or another, to some degree or other, forgotten who we are. That we are spiritual beings having a human experience and longing to be at home in God. And what I'm telling you this morning is that you don't have to wait till your body is dead to get it. We come here each week and we say the words and we eat the bread and we drink the cup and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers. And the presence and the depth of God is made available to us however much we are willing to accept and allow it. And that, my friends, that is why worship matters. So that we are formed and oriented and willing to say the holy yes. So that we'll be ready. Together, we sing ourselves into becoming, just like our ancestors did. We sing ourselves into God's presence. We sing our souls alive. We sing because we're hardwired to sing. It's part of our DNA. We sing because it's part of our creativity. We sing because it helps us express a beauty that is too big and hefty for plain old words. And we sing because it helps us remember who we are and who that trinity is and we sing because God sings. So I invite you now to stand on up.
And we're going to pray a litany together. So I'll say the, um, the regular type. It's, it should be, it's on the back of your worship guide there. Everybody found it? And I'll, I'll, I'll say the regular type and you say the bold. Okay? Here we go. God, it was your voice, the vibration of your words, that set the first molecules into formation and motion. Your breath first nudged planets and atmospheres into existence by the rasp and melody of your speaking. Like the cascade of waterfalls, the rumble of thunder, the whir of wind, and the soft breath of infants, so is the beauty and the power of the voice of our God. You moved air through lungs of dust and called us beautiful, named us beloved, and shared with us your energy and your art. When we say that we live and move and have our being in you, God, we mean that from wave to particle to atom to molecule to cell to organ to body, you, God, are within and throughout. You are love, and love set the earth spinning and the stars shining and our hearts beating. Love that sings and vibrates, dances and gyrates, love that never stops being and becoming. Love that energizes and enervates, uplifts and invigorates, love that multiplies and amplifies. In Christ's love, put on a human face took on vocal cord, consonant resonance, and sustain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In Christ, love decided that dying was dancing and resurrecting was to be expected. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In Christ, love said that loss is gain and death is life and power is weakness and dissonance is harmony and then proved it. Hallelujah. In Christ, love is remaking every broken thing, every off-key note and accidental, every counterpoint, coda, and hum is arranged to beauty. In Christ, love is singing again and still singing a song of redemption, invitation, and new creation. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.